Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about the truth behind Rosalind Franklin's contributions to science and whether dogs can smell fear. You'll also learn about a mental model you can use to be more thoughtful and produce better results with special guests Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Rosalind Franklin was a scientist whose momentous contribution to our understanding of the structure of DNA was only recognized after her death. But there's some misconceptions around her story. We're releasing today's podcast on what would be her 99th birthday. So let's celebrate by revisiting history and reminding you why you should care about this pioneering scientist. Rosalind Franklin was born in London in 1920 and received a PhD from Cambridge University in 1945. After World War II, she worked in the lab of Jacques Mering, a French engineer who was well-known in the field of X-ray crystallography. That's a technique that determines the atomic structure of substances by shooting them with beams of X-rays, then using their diffraction pattern to see the arrangements of their atoms. This technique became a powerful weapon in Franklin's arsenal, and she used her impressive skills while later working at the biophysics lab at King's College in London, Here, she captured impressive photographs of DNA and was incredibly close to identifying the structure of DNA. That's when her research was famously stolen. In 1953, a colleague named Maurice Wilkins showed her photographs and unpublished research to scientists Francis Crick and James Watson, who were working on a theoretical model of DNA. Her work helped them understand that DNA had a double helix structure, and they published a few months later with no acknowledgement of Franklin's contribution to their breakthrough. The story of the double helix makes for tempting drama, but it muddies Franklin's contributions to science as a whole. She made other groundbreaking discoveries, including the development of carbon fibers that are used to build modern planes. Her later work on the tobacco mosaic virus led to important steps forward in our understanding of viruses. She may have been part of a research-stealing scandal, but she was also a brilliant scientist and a shrewd collaborator who made some amazing contributions to science. Happy birthday, Rosalind Franklin. If you want to make changes at work or at home, then a good way to do it might be to try a concept called forcing functions. That's just one trick from the new book, Super Thinking, the big book of mental models. And today, the book's authors are joining us to talk about it. Gabriel Weinberg is the CEO and founder of DuckDuckGo, the internet privacy company and private search engine. And Lauren McCann is a statistician and researcher who's published articles in medical journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine. Their book is a fun, illustrated guide to every mental model you could possibly need. And when I asked which mental model really stood out, here's what Gabriel said. One thing that really pops out to me is this concept of forcing function, because I've used it so much at our company, And what this is, is it's basically forcing people to think critically by scheduling uh, usually meetings on a regular basis to do so. And so as an example, we have something called a postmortem where you're asking how a project went well after every single project, whether it was good or bad. And it's a structured kind of meeting that happens many times a week because many projects get concluded about what went well, what didn't go well, what we can do better. Now, when things are going really bad, there's like not a lot of time and energy because you're cleaning stuff up to make progress. But when things are going really well, having that meeting is really awesome because it forces everyone to think, what could we do even better next time and actually make changes to the company that actually improve things? 
And so we do these every week and then we just get better and better at like making decisions and doing processes and things like that. So I particularly like uh, forcing function. I mean, enforcing function is interesting because it's not just useful in a business setting. You know, forcing function can be useful in your personal life for setting good habits like making, you know, a scheduled appointment to go to the gym or or a scheduled date night or, you know, we, we were joking the other day about, you know, inviting people over forces you to clean the house. And so you can create these kind of functions to change your behavior. That's really interesting. You know, meetings get such a bad rap, but you're saying that these forcing functions when you're putting a weekly meeting, that's still okay. You're still really seeing like this is a productive, good kind of meeting. Yeah. And you're absolutely right that meetings can be bad. And there's a whole other flip side of this that we focus on about having times for deep work, because if you have too many meetings and distractions, you can just never do important work that takes really focused time and energy. So for example, I think if you can balance these things, you can actually have a productive meeting schedule because meetings are all they really are is having synchronous time together. And that really can be valuable. So at DuckDuckGo, we have no meeting, no standing meetings on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And we try to give people time to do deep work. And then we have these particular standing meetings that we try to make really good use out of. And so, for example, they're very structured. And that's one of the things to have better meetings. And so not only do we have a postmortem, for every project, we also have a kickoff call where we get everyone together and we have everyone agree on exact what we call success criteria for the project. And just the fact of doing that, forcing people to think what success means to them. Most people are always on different pages. Um, <laughs> and so that meeting is really productive and couldn't be done, you know, kind of asynchronously. One of the things that we talk about in the book is the concept of thinking gray and that everything's not black and white. Meetings aren't either good or bad. There are good meetings and there are bad meetings. And you have to decide for each meeting whether that one's worth your time or not. The bottom line is that you might want to set up forcing functions like standing meetings or deadlines to help grease the wheels for changes that you want to occur. Again, that was Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann, authors of the new book, Super Thinking, the Big Book of Mental Models. If you've ever been near a growling dog, you've probably remembered that you should stay calm since dogs can smell fear. Is that really true, though? I mean, can dogs actually smell fear? That's the real question, and to help you stay safe around animals, we've done the research. So let's get into whether this idea's bark is worse than its bite. Dogs have a proven ability to detect all sorts of biological cues, even the telltale smells of cancer. So it seems likely that they can smell the chemicals your body produces when you're afraid. Chemicals like sweat, adrenaline, and the stress hormone cortisol. Surprisingly, though, researchers have never actually conducted a study to confirm this. Of course, dogs could know you're afraid in other ways, too. Studies have shown that they interpret human cues better than chimps, and they can also read our facial expressions to know if we're happy or angry. So it's likely that they'd be able to interpret fear, too. But newsflash, it doesn't really matter whether they know if we're afraid. That's because studies have shown that fear doesn't make dogs any more likely to attack, but pain does. A 2007 study in the journal Injury Prevention found that dogs were most likely to bite children when they perceived a threat to their food, territory, or belongings, or when they were in pain or suffering from a painful medical condition. So fear might make them attack, but it's their fear, not yours. So what should you do when you think a dog might attack? Well, you should not run. Dogs are likely to attack rapidly departing people, but they're responding with predatory aggression, not recognition of fear in the victim. 
don't be too confident either. Dogs can sometimes interpret eye contact as a sign of aggression, and that can also make them attack. Your best bet is to stand still, arms at your sides, and direct your gaze near but not at the dog. Your dog on right. Before we recap what we learned today, we want to quickly remind you to please nominate Curiosity Daily to be a finalist in the 2019 Podcast Awards. Find a link in today's show notes or visit podcastawards.com to register. Then find Curiosity Daily in the drop-down menus for the categories of People's Choice, Education, and Science and Medicine. It only takes a doggone minute. And now let's recap what we learned today. Today we learned that Rosalind Franklin did a lot besides just have her DNA research stolen. And that forcing functions can force you to function better. And that dogs attack because they're in pain, not because you're afraid. Unless it's Scruff McGruff and your crime, because he's going to take a bite out of you. <laughs> Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. Stay curious.